we uh, continue on in this uh, holiday season to um, uh, think of other thoughts besides uh, those in the book of Hebrews. So uh, we will not be returning to the book of Hebrews until uh, the following Sunday. This, of course, being a, a, a different kind of Sunday, uh, we're going to turn our, th- our thoughts and our attention to another part of God's Word. Uh, let me be more specific. <clears throat> this, uh, this is the last Sunday before New Year's. On midnight Thursday, we usher in a brand new year. Out with the old, in with the new, and not a moment too soon. I think it's safe to say that most Americans are looking forward to putting 2020 behind them. It was really, on the whole, a bad year. There's been so much corruption on a national level, on a government level. There's been deceit, lying. There's the rigged election. There's voter fraud, unsettling interference from China. And let's not forget, this is the year of the pandemic. And with it, lockdowns, restrictions, masks, curfews, and all kinds of travel bans. Many small businesses have been, have been uh, wiped out, and, and the middle class seems to be disintegrating right before our eyes. Oh, do we want this year to be gone? Yeah. And for this reason, our celebrations, I think, will be no doubt more heartfelt than those in the past, even in spite of the smaller gatherings. A new year means a new beginning. Just a week into the new year, elections will be settled. We'll know who will be our next president. We'll know who will control the Senate. The vaccine will be accessible to anyone who wants it. And with the virus under control, people can go back to work. Small businesses that are left limping hopefully will come back. The economy will get better. And 2021 will be known as the comeback year. So let's stop for a moment and think about this. All predictions aside, people worldwide will celebrate the arrival of the new year as if it were a living thing. Americans, since the beginning of the 20th century, have even have a, a mental picture of a baby to represent the new year. It's baby new year. He comes dressed in a top hat, sash, and a diaper and is the avatar of optimism. And not only do we personify this period of time, we then celebrate it in a way that we believe to be indicative of how this new year will play out. Frankly, sounds a bit superstitious and, well, primitive for a modern first century people, doesn't it? Now, we're not the first civilization with superstitious beliefs. The ancients went so far to associate the new year with deities and spirits and supernatural kinds of things, like the Babylonians, for example. That is the oldest civilization, at least on record, to have done so. They call it a kitu. During their celebration, they would recite the Enuma Elish, which was their rendition of the creation account, to remind themselves of of how the primary god Marduk tamed chaos and ordered the world. Their hope in reciting this was to provoke the lesser gods of their pantheon to follow Marduk's lead and rid all chaos of the previous year as they recreated a new one. The purpose of Akitu was really to rejuvenate society. It was like pushing a supernatural reset button. There's also the ancient Chinese, of course, whose New Year celebrations date back to to 3,000 years to the Shang Dynasty. It incorporated loud noises and fireworks and elaborate and, and brightly colored costumes to scare away the hungry beast, Neon. People who cleaned their houses, did so in order to rid themselves of bad luck. And also, they associated each new year with one of the twelve zodiac animals, which is believed to characterize those born under them, or born under it, whichever the animal of the year was. 
We might also include ancient Rome. They invoked the god of all beginnings called Janus, from which we get January. Their word for doorway and archway are derived from this name as well because entrances ushered you into a new context in time. Janus was depicted in, the, in, in ancient Rome with two faces. One looked back to the passing year, and at the same time, the other face looked forward to the coming year. In some way, and it's not clear how, the Romans felt compelled by this god to forgive those who wronged them in the past and also to make moral resolutions for the future. Now, most of us don't go this far or as far to associate the new year with supernatural workings of lesser-known gods in our celebrations. But that's not to say that, that our celebrations are any less dramatic or superstitious, for that matter. Say what you want about mature and sane people of a scientific and technological age. There is a superstitious element to their festivities. If you think I'm joking, consider the New Year's resolution. We wait to make those important, usually moral resolutions at the time of new beginnings, the time of fresh start. The significance of beginning your new year, or your new cause rather, at this time shouldn't be underestimated. It's magical. It can infuse you with power and afford you the best chance of succeeding. And don't miss your opportunity. Write at the stroke of midnight to make your resolution. There's also the custom of kissing someone at midnight, which guarantees a lavish love life for the next year. Do you mean that I have to do both at, at the same time, at the stroke of midnight? Yes, you do, but don't worry, because you'll have plenty of time to do this. And some will wear something new in order to increase the likelihood of receiving more new garments throughout the year. Down south, Certain foods are harbingers of good fortune in the new year. Black-eyed peas, collard greens, ham hocks, to name a few. And you definitely want to avoid breaking anything on the first day of the year, or else that will set your pace for the rest of the year. And in case you thought that making loud noises and hooting and yelling and using blow ticklers was strictly an expression of exuberance and joy... Think again, it's to drive away bad luck spirits. Now, this all sounds ridiculous, and thankfully those of us who are Christians have risen above all of this, right? We've done away with that. But isn't there something important about this time of transition for Christians? That's a fair question. Didn't ancient Israel celebrate the new year? It's more accurate to say, I think, that they celebrated the Lord's goodness to them at the close of their agricultural year, which was a guarantee that God would provide in the coming year, and also they renewed their commitment to him as their people. You see, it's not the period of time that is sacred, which is something that Many people can get caught up in. It's not the, the, the time that's sacred, but rather it's the event itself. The incarnation is what is significant, not the exact time which we're told was the right time in which God sent his son. Otherwise, the Bible would have told us when that was. Does anybody here know Jesus' birthday? Or how about the time of his return? Now, that's a great example of what I'm getting at. No one knows the day or the hour because that's not what's important. The fact that he is coming again is important. In addition to all of that, the plain and simple truth is that the New Testament doesn't command us to celebrate the New Year or any other secular holiday for that matter, including Christmas and Easter, in light of the fact that we live in a world that celebrates New Year's, the better question is, what do we Christians do with it? Now, let me suggest an answer. How about take advantage of this time as an opportunity for edification and evangelism? We can use it to find ways into people's lives with the gospel, and this would be easy at this time, 
especially because of what goes through the minds of most people at a time like this. They're become, they're, it becomes rather a, a perfect lead-in for talking about spiritual things. As far as edification is concerned, and that's what I'm primarily interested in with this morning, we should see this transition time as another opportunity for us to take stock of our lives, to take spiritual inventory. If there is anything that Americans do at this time that's sensible and logical, it's taking inventory of their businesses. Small and large businesses across the nation are successful, and they stay that way because owners take inventory, hard, accurate, physical inventory. As one business site put it, quote, inventory is the linchpin of any retail business. As we end one year and prepare to head into the next, it's a good time to review your physical inventory and take appropriate action to position yourself for the coming year, end quote. Successful businesses take regular inventory throughout the year, not just at the end of the year. Why? Because it's always good to know your status at any given time, to know your position, how you are poised, and, and where you stand. And I would submit to you that it is no different when it comes to the Christian life. It's always good to take stock of our lives, our relationship with Christ on a regular basis, and especially before the start of the new year. I say especially, again, not because, not because there's something magical or supernatural or powerful about, about this time, but because around the world there are changes taking place, monumental changes, and usually significant, significant enough that is associated with this time of year, which is why we need to be extra vigilant about preparing ourselves for the strategic shifts in the good fight. So once again, I'm, I'm saying that the fact that we have a holiday devoted to this very idea, and it's in our minds, hard to avoid it, we could take advantage of the time to take inventory of our spiritual lives for the sake of fruitfulness. So with that in mind, let's turn to Philippians chapter 3. Take your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 3, and let's find the right questions to ask for spiritual inventory. I've actually done you the favor of publishing those questions in your bulletin if you need to follow along. I want to read this passage for you. Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 to 14. Paul says, Not that I have already grasped it or have already become perfect, but I press on if I may also take hold of that which I was even taken hold of by Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I do not regard myself as having taken hold of it yet, But this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward calling of God in Christ Jesus. So reads God's Word. First question we need to ask when we take some serious inventory of our spiritual lives at this time, and that is this. Have I got the right goal in mind? Have I got the right goal in mind? Verse 12, not that I have already grasped it or have already become perfect, but I press on if I might also have taken hold of that which I was even taken hold by Christ Jesus. Here Paul says that he has not already attained it. It referring, of course, to the resurrection back in verse 11. That's the proper antecedent to it. It, of course, is not in the original Greek uh, version. It's supplied by the New American Standard Bible in order to make sense, but it is referring back to the resurrection Paul mentions in verse 11. Now, <clears throat> if you're confused about this, let me clarify it for you. Paul's not talking about a spiritual resurrection, where in conversion a believer is raised from the dead with Christ. Paul talks about in Romans chapter 6. It's more than this. He points to that physical resurrection of our bodies at the end of time, which would signify the end of the sanctification process and the culmination of the Christian life. 
Paul even says so in the next verse. He says, or have already been made perfect. The resurrection in this context is referring to the epitome of full redemption. Perfect, he says, is what he has not attained. But he makes it his goal. He actually uses the word goal in verse 14. We'll look at that later. The goal of becoming perfect is the same thing as really becoming Christ-like, to be like him in our thinking, to, to be like him in our behavior, in our lifestyle, the way we will be in heaven someday when we are fully redeemed. And so we should pursue this as our goal in our particular stations in life. No matter what your title is or what your function or role is, where, you're, where you are now or where you will be in 10 years from now, this goal is the same, to be like Christ. And the time when you stop pursuing this goal is when you've stopped experiencing the blessings of the Christian life and things begin to go from bad to worse. Now, why would any Christian not pursue Christ-likeness? Christians don't deliberately avoid Christ-likeness, you see, unless, of course, they are in willful sin. They're more ignorant of how to grow, and they often buy into replacement goals. Replacement goals, yes. Replacement goals, such as to be happy, to make others happy, to retire early, to have that house, that car, to be married, to have kids, to be healthy, maybe even to be pain-free. Now, these aren't necessarily bad goals. Some of them are amoral. They're just goals. What makes them good is if they are within the will of God. But they are not primary goals. None of them is a primary goal, and we shouldn't seek any of them at the expense of the primary goal of being like Christ. In some cases, pursuing a secondary goal, even when, it's, uh, when the goal in and of itself is biblical, as a primary one can prevent us from being Christ-like. You may want to impress your boss at corporate, but don't do it at the expense of the Christian work ethic. It's more important to be Christ-like in your work than to gain your boss's favor. That's just an example. So what does it mean, then, to seek perfection in the Christian life? That seems a rather unrealistic goal for Christians, not to mention a prideful endeavor from them. Aren't we supposed to be humble? Well, let me assure you that it is neither unrealistic nor prideful to seek to be like Jesus, who is perfect. It's okay, you see, for Christians to be like someone else as long as it's Jesus or, or somebody who imitates him. More than this, God has, has made us perfect in Christ. Someone who stands in Christ, who trusts in his life with, or trusts his life with the work of Christ, God sees that person in Christ. God considers him then perfect in Christ and accepts him. We Christians have a position in heaven before the face of God because we are in Christ. Now, if that's what's true of us and will be reality for us someday in heaven, the message of the New Testament epistles is this, strive to be that way now. Strive to be that way now. It makes no difference to our striving that we'll never reach this goal before we get to heaven. What matters is that we behave in a way that is true of us. You are perfect in Christ, so act that way. Rely on the Holy Spirit and the appropriation of the Scripture to strive to be what you have already become. More on that in just a few moments. Let me hasten, though, to the second question. Second question in our inventory, spiritual inventory, is this. Have I got an honest view of myself? Have I got an honest view of myself? That's in the first part of verse 13. Look at what it says there. Brothers and sisters, I do not regard myself as having taken hold of it yet. Some verses say, have arrived. Now, this is another important question to ask yourself going into the new year because people don't have an honest view of themselves most of the time. 
That's right. An old friend who used to be a member of my first church years ago rang me up for Christmas and told me that she had turned 80 earlier this month. And Pastor Bob, the strange thing is, she said, I still think of myself as I was when I was 50. And I would say that having a mental picture of ourselves that's much younger than we really look is common. And I bet if you weren't wearing a mask that you would all be smiling because you know exactly what I'm saying. It's very common, in spite of the fact that we see ourselves in the mirror every day. But not having an honest view of ourselves goes much, much deeper than this, beloved. And most of the time, it is, it is a problem that stems from too much self-love. Too much self-love. An exaltation of self is what I'm talking about. It's a problem that we all battle with. It's really pride, and it manifests itself in different, if not even extremely or extreme opposite behavior on a spectrum. Let me give you an example. One extreme example of sinful self-love, way over here in this end of the spectrum, is a person who overestimates his own abilities and significance. He may have uh, excelled in business or in, so in his social circles because of his domineering and intimidating presence or intellect. He's pushy, arrogant. He's the know-it-all type who thinks that he's arrived. He's never wrong, always has the last word. He offends people quite easily, but, but is himself the most easily offended. And when he does offend someone, he never asks that person for forgiveness. Now, the opposite extreme of the sinful self-love is someone who underestimates his abilities and significance and withdraws, even shies away from ministering to others. How does this person esteem himself too much, you might be wondering? Sounds like he suffers from low self-esteem. Well, that's what the psychologists would have you believe, but the so-called low self-esteem problem is a myth. It's a myth. Let me prove that to you. If Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 5 that no one ever hated his own self, and Jesus assumes that we love ourselves just fine when he calls us to love our neighbors as ourselves, and the New Testament is filled with commands to believers to deny themselves, which is even part of the gospel, then the problem with human beings is not that they esteem themselves too little, but too much. The person I've just described to you way over here on the other side of the spectrum loves himself too much. You say, how? Well, he refuses to let himself be hurt, you see, by counsel and change. He cares so much about his own feelings and what people have to say about him that he protects himself at all costs and would never submit himself to scrutiny of God's word. He stays put in his house. Psychologists might, might label him as social anxiety disorder, but we know better. We know better. He also honestly believes that he doesn't deserve to be treated badly, and so he makes sure that no one will ever bother him again. And he stays put. Sometimes that means suicide, which is the ultimate form of self-centeredness. You should know that God calls us to have neither a good or bad view of ourselves. Did you know that? You might be thinking, well, there, there's a good view and there's a bad view, right? Well, the Bible never calls us to have either a good view or a bad view of ourselves. It calls us to have an accurate one. How do we come by that? Well, certainly not by comparing ourselves to man-made standards or to anyone else for that matter, which is the common way to judge one's significance in the world. And I think we all know it's it, it, it's, it's a good thing when people uh, do that as far as they're concerned because we can make ourselves look pretty good depending on who it is that we compare ourselves to. Paul exposed the false teachers at Corinth for doing just this. 
Listen to 2 Corinthians 10, verse 12. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 12, Paul says, For we do not presume to rank or compare ourselves with some of those who commend themselves, but when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they have no understanding. No, the Bible tells us that the only, the, the only way that you can have an accurate self-image, a correct one, is if you compare yourself to the Lord. For example, Isaiah had an accurate self-image after he saw the Lord. He said, Woe is me, for I am ruined. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. That's an accurate self-image. Nebuchadnezzar's accurate assessment of himself, and all of humanity, actually, came once he recognized that the Lord Almighty is sovereign over the affairs of men. He said, all the inhabitants of the earth are of no account compared to God. That's an accurate self-image. And let's not forget Job's sober assessment of himself after his encounter with the Lord. Now my eye sees you. Therefore, I retract and I repent, sitting on dust and ashes. That's a great self-image right there. If we compare ourselves to Christ, we find ourselves in the right state of mind with an honest assessment of ourselves. We, we will become humble, poor in spirit, meek, mournful, submissive, teachable, lovable, loving, and ready to change the instant we discover that we are out of God's will. Do you have an accurate self-image? Number three, am I satisfied with my walk with Christ? That's a great question. Am I satisfied with my walk with Christ? That's also in the first part of verse three, uh, 13. rather. Notice also... Here, Paul repeats what he just said in verse 12. Verses, verses 12 and 13 have similar language. I do not regard myself as having taken hold of it yet. That was expressed in verse 12 as well. Why the repetition? Because in this context, the repeated words are meant for emphasis. Paul's emphasizing, which is often the way we use repetition as well. Paul wants us to know that he is not satisfied with where he's at in his walk with Christ. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I don't mean that Paul found no joy or pleasure in the Christian life. He certainly did, and there are plenty of New Testament passages to prove that. Paul loved the Christian life. He said so himself in this very epistle. He tells the Philippians that he had learned the secret of being content in whatever circumstance he found himself because he could do all things through Christ who strengthens him. You most likely will never meet someone who was as secure in his faith or delighted more in his relationship with Christ than this man. To live as Christ and to die as gain, he said. Wow. Now that's the way we ought to view life. So if that's the case, what do you mean by saying that he was never satisfied with where he was in his Christian walk? Simply this. He was never satisfied to remain at his present level of maturity, which is another way of saying he always wanted to grow, to be more mature, to be more Christ-like, to press on, and as he stated in verse 12, to take hold of that for which he was taken hold of by Christ Jesus. Again, that would be perfection, full redemption. He was never satisfied with his level of knowledge. He wanted to know more, like the power of, of Jesus' resurrection. He was never satisfied with his level of accomplishment. He wanted to achieve more for Christ. Told the Romans, I'm on my way to Spain. Or his prayer life. He was the one that called us all to pray without ceasing. Hopefully one thing that's different about you, beloved, from one year to the next is your level of Christian maturity. Are you more mature at the end of the new year than you were at the beginning of it? We Christians should never be satisfied with where we're at in our Christian walk with Christ. We should want to be more mature, always growing, wanting to know more of the Bible, how to better 
how better to appropriate it in all situations of life, how to pray better, more intelligently, more earnestly, to know doctrine and the mind of Christ more fully, to know him and the power of his resurrection. The day that we say, I have arrived, or I don't feel the need to grow anymore, I, I, I like where I'm at, and that's enough, is the day that we come dangerously close to shipwrecking our faith. This is Paul's thinking. He, was all, he always wanted more. It, it is safe to say that even at the moment of writing this letter, he was unsatisfied with where he was at. How do I know that? Look at verse 10. Verse 10, go back a couple of verses. He says, That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if somehow I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Can you sense the tone? It's, it's almost desperate. It's certainly urgent. I'm sure that each of us can come up with an equally important list of the ways that we want to be more Christ-like in our situations of life. So, so what have you done about it? What are you going to do about it going forward? Does it bother you that, you that you have areas in your life that need shoring up? Are you satisfied to just leave things the way they are? Perhaps you think that you're too busy to work on needed changes. Maybe you're trying to justify ignoring biblical priorities with some form of Christian service. That's pretty sneaky. Or maybe you think that you're just too old to change. I used to run into that kind of thinking earlier in my pastorate. There were a lot more older people because I was a lot younger back then. They started to fade into the background when it came to ministering oppor ministry opportunities and they and they could that that they could certainly be involved in and and their excuse was this, well, you know, I've paid my dues. I've done my share. It's time to let the younger members take over now. It, Really, I, I, I thought we were done with God's work on earth when he takes us to heaven. The truth is, beloved, all those excuses are really satanic lies. Don't believe them. God calls you to strive for perfection, even on a sickbed, and until you breathe your last. Strive. The race isn't over. Number four, have I handled my past biblically? Oh, this is one of my favorite. It's in the second part of verse 13. Have I handled my past biblically? The past, it's that time that exists before the moment of speaking or writing. It's essentially history, whether it's recent or ancient. It's completed, it's over, it's irretrievable, never to be relived for a thrill or rewritten because it's gone. We can only remember it and reenact it to some small degree in the present, like the Lord's Supper. But the past has become something else to those who are plagued by it in one way or another. It's, it's a place to them, almost as real and as tangible as a geographical location. And some find it necessary to go there for comfort, to, to dwell on better times, to escape their responsibilities of the present. Or maybe re-enter with perfect hindsight in order to right a wrong, as if that were even possible. When people think of the past this way, they, they're living a lie, a sham, an illusion, a fantasy, something that doesn't exist. The past is not alive. It is set in the concrete of time, immortalized, or immortalized, rather, forever. People who say they have issues with their past haven't realized that their issues are really with the present, which happens to include their memories and consequences of the past. Oh, it's easy to get caught up in this way of thinking because of a heavily psychologized society, even saying, those were the good old days, is a complete falsehood for Christians. Complete falsehood. Listen very carefully what I'm saying. According to the Bible, the best days for any Christian is always today. Always today. Where he looks more like Christ than he has yet. 
another day closer to glory, where his mercies are new, and there is grace sufficient for the task. Any sentimental longing to relive the past amounts to a morbid and sinful view of the past. Don't take my word for it. Isaiah 43, verses 18 and 19, God says, Do not call to mind the former things or consider things of the past. Behold, I am going to do something new. Now it will spring up. Will you not be aware of it? Or Ecclesiastes 7.10. I like this one. Do not say, Why is it that the former days were better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask about this. The Apostle Paul makes a bold statement in the second half of verse 13 about striving for perfection. It includes two perspectives. I want you to remember these if you remember nothing else. Two perspectives. One perspective is forgetting the past. Forgetting. Forgetting the past. He says, forget what is behind in the same way that Jesus' disciples had forgotten to take bread and, and didn't have any more than one loaf in the boat with them, this was before Jesus was about to feed 5,000, or the hearer of the word only, who, when looks at himself in a mirror and then goes away, immediately forgets what kind of person he was. So maturing Christians must forget the past. That's it. Shut the door. Now, this might come as a shock to you Old Testament scholars out there who are well aware of the Lord's commands to Israel not to forget him or his statutes when they enter into the new land, for the consequences would be catastrophic. Well, let me assure you, Paul's command has nothing to do with forgetting God or his word or even our history, whether it's in American history or other history. The Bible places great value on heritage. There are helpful things about the past that we should remember. History helps us not to repeat sinful mistakes and reminds us of, of our frailties and how much we need to depend on our great God, of course. Rather, we need to forget that which holds us back from progress in the faith, like all the ways, for example, in which others have offended us. You don't remember those, do you? If we, follow, if we follow biblical reconciliation, then biblical forgiveness would demand that we do not dwell on such things. We have biblical precedent for this all over the place. Genesis 41, 51, Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. For he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. We should forget our own sins as well once we've confessed them to God. Some well-meaning but misguided church folk that have swallowed a good dose of secular psychology believe, of course, that we must forgive ourselves before we could actually move on. Yes, they say, by all means, ask God's forgiveness, but until you forgive yourself, you cannot go forward with a clear conscience. Now, not only is this nowhere to be found in the Bible, but that kind of thinking exalts self far above God by seeing offense to God as not nearly as bad as offense to self. Quite the contrary to this, the Bible says that you need to ask God for forgiveness for your sin, and once you have, forget about it. Move on. Live with it no longer because most important, the most important person in the universe, God himself, does not hold it against you. And that, beloved, should be enough. We might also forget all our self-righteous achievements before our conversion. Sometimes that's difficult for some. Listen to Paul's testimony here in verses 4 to 8 of this very chapter. Although I myself could boast as having confidence even in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he is confident in the flesh, I have more reason 
circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever these things were were gained to me, these things I have counted as loss because of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as mere rubbish. Wow. Paul's last few words there are on the matter are rather graphic. Our English Bible Bibles translate it rubbish. Some use garbage. The Greek word can also mean dirt, refuse, excrement of animals, and dung. The idea is that anything that is completely worthless, it should be thrown away, let go. It's noteworthy that Paul thinks of his past achievements as a Pharisee this way. Anything that Christians had produced in their unconverted lives is of no eternal consequence to the kingdom of heaven And I would challenge anybody who thinks differently. No eternal consequence to the kingdom of heaven. It might even have been philanthropic and charitable, but outside of a relationship with Jesus, it's merely a self-righteous work that is temporal and of no heavenly value. God himself actually calls it filthy rags. Do you mean that if I were awarded a Nobel Prize Peace Prize as an unbeliever, that prize would not be something I should cherish or or be proud of even after my conversion? Yes, it's exactly what I mean. What possible good does it serve to bring peace on earth that is not tied in any way to the gospel or doesn't credit God for the work or doesn't point people to the superlative peace found in Christ? In fact, anyone who doesn't help people, who who doesn't do charitable things like feed the hungry or help the sick in the name of Jesus is only making people's lives easier and happier on their way to hell. It's tantamount to... tantamount to, to, to handing out life jackets to people on the Titanic instead of providing them with lifeboats that will deliver them from death. That's the difference. Now, you, you may have no problem buying into what I've just said, and I pretty much figured that you wouldn't, but there comes, here comes the challenge. Paul not only discounts his secular achievements that he once so proudly hailed as an unbeliever, he also puts his Christian godly achievements behind him as well. Now, that's rather hard to believe, I know. If the only work that God accepts and that is an eternal investment in the kingdom, is work done in the name of Christ, why would we ever want to forget them? Okay, great question. Let me answer that with another question. Why would you want to dwell on them? It's a fair question, don't you think? We need to give praise and credit to the only one who is really responsible for our good works in the name of Christ, especially publicly in the assembly as we do here every Sunday, and then move on. Move on. If you dwell on your Christian achievements, no matter how wonderful they may be, you allow yourself to become complacent. You start to think that you deserve to coast, perhaps, in your Christian life. Maybe Maybe you'll be less likely to put yourself out for, for other fellow believers or even for an unbeliever that, that you could explain the gospel to because you've, you've had a busy and successful month of ministry already. That's it. In fact, so busy that you've decided to take the rest of the year off and do something fun. Or like those elderly that I mentioned already who think that there is an age when they can stop living for Jesus. Instead of singing the words, living for Jesus, a life that is true, striving to please him in all that I do, well, we'd have to change that to living for Jesus, a life that is true, except when I'm old and have nothing to do. 
Let's make this real simple. To allow yourself to forget is an asset to the faith depending on what it is we forget. If there are, if there are terrible consequences in your life right now that are a carryover from not confessing sin committed in the past, confess it now and move on. If, you're accomplished, if you've accomplished great things for Christ in the past, praise the Lord, but don't stop there. Don't live in the past or be a slave to the past or even let it prevent you from making godly progress. Paul didn't. More needs to be done. Great things are still ahead. And that leads to the fifth question. Am I straining myself to reach what lies ahead of me? Am I straining myself to reach what lies ahead of me? Verse 14. We said that striving for perfection includes two perspectives, right? The one we just looked at was the importance of forgetting the past. We look to the other one now. Reaching forward, le- reaching forward what is, what is uh, ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call. The prize to be won here to which God calls us is described in various ways in the New Testament. Romans 8, in Romans 8, it, it's conformity to Christ. In 1 Corinthians 1, 9, it's, the fellow, it's fellowship with Christ. Colossians 3.15, it is the peace of Christ. In 1 Thessalonians 4.7, it is sanctification. In 1 Timothy 6.12, it's eternal life. All of these are to be experienced to the fullest in heaven, but they are what we are to reach for now. To reach for. The description of reaching for what lies ahead is better understood, I think, by the NIV's translation, straining. Pursuing Christ's likeness should be strenuous. We, when we strain to reach something just within our grasp, we use a, a great more deal of our whole body than we do just one part of it. Straining for heaven comes close to Jesus' idea of taking heaven by violence. That is, holy violence that we do to ourselves for the sake of maturing. Straining, reaching, exerting. These are all descriptions and and depictions of of the Christian walk that, that most Christians in America wouldn't think to use or are even encouraged by their churches to think about. So many are passive, just coasting. Sunday Christians, holiday Christians. Are you applying your mental faculties to the things that are above where Jesus is? Are you admonishing the unruly, encouraging the faint-hearted, helping the weak, being patient with everyone? Are you seeing that no one repays evil for evil, but always seeking what is good for one another and for all people? Maturing in the Christian life is our responsibility, beloved. It doesn't come by osmosis or mystical, some mystical process that happens without our knowing it, as the contemporary church growth movement would like us to believe. We have to work hard at it, and with all the resources that God has given us to grow by, the scriptures, the mind of Christ, the new nature, and the indwelling Holy Spirit, we need nothing more than that. Finally, last question for a spiritual inventory. Am I exerting myself in this way because of what is true of my union with Christ? By doing all of this because of what is true of my union with Christ, verse 14. What's left of verse 14 for us to consider is this little but profound phrase, in Christ. We should understand it to go with the main verb press on, not with the calling. It's not as, as the NIV has interpreted it, that we are, we are called by God in Christ, although that is a fact proven elsewhere in the New Testament, but rather we are to press on in Christ. Pressing on in Christ. The idea is Paul strenuously presses on because of what is true about his relationship with Christ. What is true? Well, for one, Christ has already accomplished this goal for Paul, as we've already mentioned. Remember, Paul stands perfectly, uh, perfect already in Christ, as is true of all of us who are in Christ. And someone asks, well, why do we press on for something we already have attained in Christ? 
and as we said before, one reason is that is that uh, it, it, it is a heavenly reality, not an earthly reality. So we press on to experience as much of it as we can now, because that's what's true of us in heaven. The other reason is that that's the way we should behave. As we already noted, if we're perfect in Christ, we need to act that way. We need to act what's true of us. Paul does. He will fall short along the way, even the great apostle, and he will repent of his sin. And he will strive to act more like Christ with each passing day. More than this, pressing on in Christ also means that anything we do, we must do, we must do it in Christ as well. Now by that I mean that we need to resist the temptation of doing anything in the Christian life by our own strength. Well, what does it mean to obey the Lord on your own strength? Well, it, it can mean several things. It can mean obeying the Lord with wrong motives for selfish ends. It could also mean trying to achieve godly ends by unbiblical means, like using secular principles to run a church or to counsel a person. A Christian man wants a submissive wife and obedient kids and will do whatever it takes to get that, even if he has to go outside of Scripture to do it. That's what I mean. It can also mean being selective about which biblical commands and principles that you live by, even pitting one against another. So the Christian man who may not want to minister to his wife the way God calls him to immerses himself in ministry to keep away from home. And many wives and families are neglected because the head of the home is out on quote-unquote Christian service when he should be home ministering to his family. We must make sure that what we live and work and minister is in Christ, which means to obey his commands and principles with right motives, leaving the consequences of our obedience to him. We cannot be careful enough since the difference between doing something in Christ and doing something by our own strength is very subtle. Two Christians can accomplish the same ministry goals at, the, at any given time, and one will have done it in Christ while the other on his own strength. You need to be sure. In closing, let me say these are the questions I believe Philippians 3, 12 to 14 has for us that we should ask ourselves when taking spiritual inventory. We say with Paul, all of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. For this is not just how we prepare for the new year. It's how we prepare for heaven. 